Welcome to FICP's podcast series, FICP Focus 45. FICP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FICP global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FICP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Welcome to FICP's webinar and podcast series, FICP Focus 45. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel, and I'm a partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal in Canada. Today, we will be having a conversation with Andrew Hirschfeld, who needs really no introduction, as he is, for all intents and purposes, the head of the USPTO. Good morning, Mr. Hirschfeld. Good morning. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Thank you very much for spending some time with us today. So why don't we start just very rapidly into what has the USPTO done recently in terms of uh, remote working? And given the, the State of the Union last night, what are the plans going forward in terms of remote working and coming back to some sort of a normal? Well, let me uh, start by first, let me say just thank you for having me. Um, I've had many interactions and, and meetings, discussions with with members of FICP, and I am a huge fan. Um, uh, I wrote down what Louis Pierre said in the beginning about common solutions. I always find uh, the FICP group to, to be really focused on common solutions that stood out to me uh, from your opening remarks. So, so thank you very much uh, again for having me. I will just tell you that 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 telework has actually long been part of the USPTO business plan. Um, so prior to the pandemic, we had a very robust uh, telework program where we had about 50% of our employees worked remotely full time. Another 40% of those employ employees were able to work at least part time remotely in their homes. So put that together, you had about 90% of the people prior to the pandemic uh, and this is not even planning for the pandemic. This is before the pandemic was in sight even. Um, being able to work at home at least sometimes or having equipment, et cetera. So for us, when the pandemic uh, started, um, we were able to very quickly transition everybody to uh, remote uh, workforce. And I say everybody, obviously, you know, a few people who needed for IT systems, et cetera, came, still had to come in for you know, security reasons. But, but the vast majority of our employees, 90, you know, 99 plus percent of our employees uh, have been remote for two years. Uh, the, the transition for us was, was relatively easy. We only had about 1,100, 1,200 employees who didn't have equipment and weren't set up to already work at home uh, because of our robust telework. So for us, it was, uh, I won't say a perfect transition. It um, uh, certainly wasn't seamless, but, but probably easier than, than most had um, because, again, we were, we were well prepared for that. Now, uh, what I expect to happen moving forward is I, th I think I will see that the full-time telework uh, people will probably increase. I, I don't know exactly what that will be. I think I think we're all guessing uh, as we're going to be return back to what we'll call the new normal. I'm going to guess we have about 75% of the people will be full-time at home uh, and the remaining will, will be, will be part-time. Um, and I am expecting us to announce uh, very soon a transition back to the office. Um, we can't certainly just flip a switch and say 
those of you who are coming back, you know, you're back tomorrow, there'll be a period of time uh, where we give people to come back. Anyway, I know there's a lot, you probably have a lot of questions. I, I won't go too long, but I'll just highlight that we've actually hired a number of people. We've hired five or 600 employees who have never been to the office, right? So some of them don't even have, um, you know, places to live in the area. So uh, we'll, we'll make sure to give people the, the right transition time to, to be able to come in. So I expect some like myself, I'm here today, uh, will be in uh, on the sooner side and others will, will take probably up, up to a month or two. So, so one of the questions that comes up is, so how does it work if applicants would like an in-person interview with an examiner? Or how's that, how do you foresee that coming along? Um, you know, clearly uh, video conferences with examiners have happened, but sometimes it's good to have an in-person meeting. First of all, um, I want to say where you can, you should do video conferencing. It's, it, it works. It's better for everybody. Um, we've been looking at this for years and years. Again, this is not a pandemic issue. This no. is something that, that the USPTO has been, been looking at. So for the vast majority of interviews, uh, video conference should be fine. As a matter of fact, we surveyed users and, and it was, I don't remember the numbers now, but it was well over 95% preferred the video conference anyway from, from the public. Now, that being said, when people do have a, uh, the need for an in-person interview, uh, there certainly are ways that that can get done. Um, you can meet with the examiner supervisor or a supervisor in person with the examiner on, on video. If they are remote, if they're relatively close to the office, they can come in. Um, there's the possibility of going to one of our regional offices. So those should be the, the, the exceptions to the rule, but they certainly can happen uh, where needed and, and we'll, we'll make sure to make the in-person work. And, and how much discretion do the examiners or the supervising examiners have in terms of accommodating someone for an in-person interview? So th that's a good question. So first of all, it, it also depends on the, the timing, right? So the timing, there's discretion about interviews, period. <laughs> and that's why I'm hesitating to the question, because it really depends on how many interviews have been uh, had in, in the case and the timing of the interview. Um, to me, it's really a, a case by case. I do think the supervisor will have discretion there. That being said, we, we, we want to be accommodating when we can. So we, we don't actually have a hard and fast rule on that. Oh, fair enough. And, and I think uh, our listeners appreciate that this is clearly a case by case and that, and, you know, you can't, can't request an examiner the day before your six months deadline. <laughs> it's not going to work. So, yeah, I think we, we appreciate that. Um, moving on to uh, perhaps another topic um, and thank you for, for providing us with some clarity. Yeah, on, can on I just share, share, share one, one topic really? Just, just you know, I, I've been at the PTO for, for, uh, since 1994. And I kid you not, when I interviewed in late 1993 for a job as a patent examiner, the, the supervisor interviewing me said, one day we're going to have a true nationwide workforce with people all over the country. Now, it took us you know, decades after that, to, to or not decades, but, but many, many years after that to make it happen. But, but I just share that that's been a vision of the USPTO for a long time. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think certainly the USPTO has been showing a lot of leadership on this particular point. Uh, the opening of the regional offices, uh, the flexibility in terms of working from home, the virtual interviews, all of that has really, I think, changed the way agents and applicants interact with the USPTO. Clearly, no, nothing is perfect. I mean, that's just a given, but certainly I think a, a lot of us recognize that the USPTO has been doing a significant amount of work on that. And, and I think firms that are now exploring how to move to a, a remote workforce can take some cues from how you've done things in the past. I hope so. And we're also planning to, to have 
examiners, patent examiners who are all over the country be more involved in their communities if, if they want to be and they're looking at ways to be able to do that. And I think that is a really helpful step too. So anyway, That's we can probably spend the whole 45 minutes on, on, on telework here. Um, yeah, and thank you very much for that. Um, so as I said, I just wanted to switch gears a little bit. So we've been in a pandemic situation now for, well, two years almost exactly to the day. Um, what have you seen in terms of filings on patent and trademarks in the past two years? Have they increased, decreased, st stable? Has there been one area or one art unit in particular that has seen a significant rise? Well, we've seen, we've seen different experiences on the patent side and the trademark side. So let me address them uh, uh, separately. Although I will say um, we have not seen particular technologies per se um, having any, any drastic changes. The changes that I'm going to talk about have really been across the board uh, okay. for everybody in uniform for technologies. So on the, on the patent side, um, what we saw in fiscal year 21 was an extremely slight decrease in the number of filings compared to fiscal year 20. It was a decrease of 0.1% which is almost flat. Um, I was hoping it was gonna be flat, at least for the optics of saying we did not have a decrease. Um, I will say we were modeling a 4% decrease um, given the pandemic and what we thought. So, so we were actually very happy to see that, that, that our numbers were, were not correct and that the filings were closer to what they were um, for fiscal year 20. Um, so uh, we've also looked back in history to try to see big events and their impacts on, on filings and. Um, I will just share that the only time in the last you know, 20 plus years that there was a decrease other than this past year was in 2009 when the financial crisis, and that was a 9% decrease. So to think in the, in the pandemic, we were only uh, you know, basically flat where we had a 9% decrease in the financial crisis of 2008 and nine, I think says an awful lot. Um, and so that to me is a very positive story. By the way, in, in the start of 2022, uh, we're looking at about a, a one to 2% um, increase so far of filings compared to last year, which is consistent with what we were modeling. So it seems like we're, we're getting back to some, some normalcy. On the trademark side, uh, we saw the complete uh, opposite. We actually saw an increase in filings of, of 30%, which is remarkable. As you, you, know, uh, you know, I'm commissioner for patents. I have been for, for many years, even though for the last year I've been uh, acting in this role. If we ever had something like that on the patent side, it would take us for, you know, forever to recover, um, quite frankly, because a 30% increase is just huge. Now, luckily, trademarks is a little more nimble. They're smaller, um, less filings overall. Uh, but they've had a 30% increase. Most of that was, was due to people, you know, increased desire to have uh, trademark registrations uh, during the, the pandemic. And so what we're seeing now is... Um, a return to, to more of the, the normal trajectory. It's almost like if you looked at the graph, you would see an anomaly last year and then a return, you know, straight line return to, you know, increases every year. Uh, so, so we're seeing the return to normal. I would just caution comparing, we always compare to the previous year. And, and when people compare to, to last year in trademarks, they'll see a big drop off, um, but that's really not uh, uh, an accurate comparison because of the anomaly in the year. So we're trying to compare to the last Two years. Fair enough, and uh, and so you're looking at a what a one to two percent increase in patents for this fiscal year. Correct. That's about where we've started the fiscal year. Does that trigger an increase in the examiner core in in any significant manner, or are we are you still looking at normal churn of retirements and and departures and hiring? 
We almost year in and year out have anywhere from a slight 1% increase to a 3 or 4% increase. So in the last 20 plus years, there's only been the two this past year and then 2009, as I mentioned, uh, where there was not an increase. So our, our trajectory is, does include a slow uh, uptick of, of examiners of, of the number of staff. Now, the way this can get a really complicated issue, so I don't want to bring us all down a rabbit hole, but, but as you hire examiners, it, it doesn't really help your productivity when they're newer. Um, but as they ascend the ranks, it certainly helps the overall productivity. And as examiners ascend uh, up the chain, so to speak, they become more productive. So, so you don't always need to hire more people when you have a, a rise in filings, but we model out five years and, and, and try to plan for five years. We hired hundreds of examiners during the pandemic. It's also our attrition rates about a, a 4%. So, you know, just looking at the math with, 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 with 8,000 plus examiners and a 4% attrition, um, that, that, that in itself is hundreds. So one of the issues that is of concern to many of our practitioners, of course, is patent quality. Can you give us a quick run through as to what are the measures you're using for, for patent quality? And then a subsequent question, and, and then I'll let you address the, both sides of the topic is, from your point of view, from an organizational point of view, is quality increasing over time? I will just say, first of all, I hope that, that quality is always job one at the USPTO and always the most important initiative period. Um, it certainly has been for me and will be as long as you know, I, I'm in charge of either the patents organization um, or the USPTO. And so uh, there is always a focus on, on quality. To your question about um, measures, so we measure quality in a whole variety of ways. And um, again, I, I, I'm uh, in the interest of time, I don't want to get too weedy here, but, but in my time as uh, commissioner, we've entirely changed the way we look at quality and measure quality. Um, we used to really uh, measure on its impacts and prosecution. So did the examiner do something which delayed or slowed down prosecution? And what we learned was that measure wasn't necessarily aligned with the public's view of quality. Um, and so uh, we made a change uh, to really look at statutory compliance. So um, this past year, we actually have all new performance appraisal plans for our um, examiners, which have this new measure of quality, that's how examiners are held accountable for their jobs, how they're rated at the end of the year. Um, and so uh, these measures are statutory compliance. So we, we look at each of the patent statutes, you know, 102, 103, 112, uh, et cetera. And we decide, you know, were your decisions um, compliant with each of the statutes? So that means if you didn't make a rejection, should you have? If you made one, should you not have? Um, and either way is, is what we look at. So that's the, the nuts and bolts, so to speak, of what we do and monitor at the examiner level. And then we also do a survey of twice, twice a year of, of the public. Um, and, and we, we uh, go out and ask questions about perceptions of quality. And uh, this is a little more challenging because it's a perception survey, um, but, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, it's important to hear what, what the public is saying. And I, I will say that we've seen a very steady increase in the positive responses from the public and a very steady decrease in the negative responses. Um, we've been doing this since 2006. Uh, in 2006, we had about a one-to-one -one ratio of people who said positive to negative. Um, our most recent survey was our best ratio, our highest, highest positives, and we're about 11 to one. So 11, for every 11 people who say quality is good or excellent, you have one person who says it's poor. Um, so I okay. think quality is improving. I, I, you know, it, it's a, quality is kind of that thing that, that 
you know, you never get there, right? It's you're always improving, but there's always more that can be done, especially as as patents are are more in the in the mainstream, more in the in the in the focus. You know, you hear uh, sometimes the president talk about patents and the importance of patents. So um, we're really trying to to take a lot of steps in quality, including a very clear record, um, making sure the examiner's thought process is on that on the, in the record and and on those documents, so that. That the applicant can can at least know what what the examiner is thinking and can agree or disagree. So one one question that has come in, and this is something we talked about when we chatted just before this this session, is you know what is your recommendation if you have one on how applicants should deal with outlier examiners who have very low allowance rates and sometimes take what can be perceived to be unreasonable positions. And at the same time, how do you address examiners with very high allowance rates, having very little uh, or no substantive examination? And I guess this comes back to some of the tools that are now available in order to evaluate examiner performance, looking at historical allowance rates and time to first action and, and things like that. So we, we before I, I, I get to your question, Louis-Pierre, let me just say that, that we also monitor uh, outliers. So, um, you know, one thing we can do really, we, we have every action recorded, everything that an examiner does is quite frankly, there's a record of. So, so we've been keeping statistics for many, many years about, you know, the number of first actions, the number of finals, the number of second action, non-finals, the number of allowances, you know, basically anything you can think of, we, we track and our supervisors have access to that information in real time, uh, as do the examiners. The examiners have it for themselves and the supervisors have it for all their subordinates. And we also look for, for outliers um, in our own uh, evaluation. And when we see an outlier, it, it doesn't mean they're necessarily doing something wrong. They might be actually doing something right. Maybe they're an outlier for a good reason. Uh, but when we see an outlier, we, we dive into it to see why are you an outlier? And so we look at it to, to be able to give us information uh, to your question about about uh, the public using this, look, I, I think information is always key, and 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 it would be wrong for me to say we we look at it and and it's not right for you all to look at. It. Of course, it's it could be helpful for for the public, but I would just say take it for what it's worth and and use caution because I have I have seen stories where I've literally seen a blog where you know there was an allegation that some examiner has gone off the rails and decided to stop allowing. Uh, any any patents um, and and the statistics were like look at this certain date there was like a drop off he just stopped allowing well that examiner changed jobs right so we looked into it and that examiner changed jobs and was in a different job was actually a supervisor um, so of course they, their their name wasn't on on patents anymore um, things I have literally seen stories like that and and then the other issue I want to say is you have to be really careful. Like, again, data is helpful and data should be helpful for everybody, but you have to be very careful. There are different allowance rates for different technologies that are always going to be there. So for example, if you're in the financial area of business methods, which we all know the courts in, you know, in the US have spoken on that and, and your chances of getting an allowance are, are much more challenging there than in other areas of the USPTO. And I have seen people comparing examiners and technologies where the case law is really hard to allow to areas where the technology is new and so there's more allowances and that's really an unfair comparison so make sure you're looking at an apples to apples comparison but again we look for this too and they're, they're you know our hope is that there are 
no outliers. I know that that's a little bit of an ideal, uh, idealistic view, but, but we try to evaluate this. Everybody gets the same training. Our training's available to the public. So we really should have everyone aligned, but I totally get that there's a human factor involved. So I want to come back. One of the questions that just came up on the, on the chat is uh, now that examiners work remotely and in fact have been doing so for, for a few years, do you foresee that this would pave the way to more international cooperation, particularly in PCT proceedings? Well, it's not as funny. I, when you started the question, um, it was because we were talking about quality. I, I thought you were going to go to a different place. I'll just say that I, I've had people, I've had people tell me that that our best quality initiative is our remote ability that examiners work remotely because we can attract and retain people that we wouldn't be able to if they all had to move to Alexandria, Virginia. And I truly believe that also. Um, to your question, I, I'm not seeing the the interplay between. Um, international work. I think, you know, an examiner, whether they're remote or working in the office, first of all, they do have to be in the United States. Um, their work is the same either way. Um, their caseload will be the same. So, so you know, I, 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 I don't see that there's an impact on any particular cases, given that somebody's remote, it is literally the same docket. By the way, one of the reasons we can have such a robust uh, remote workforce is because what I also said about the measures, because we measure everything. Examiners, you know, every bi-week, they know their production, they know how they're doing, they, their supervisor, you know, knows how they're doing as well. So that makes it easier. But again, same work, whether you're in the office or whether you're remote. So in, in terms of measurement, that, that requires some robust IT systems in, the, in order to be able to, to address some of those issues. Um, can, you, can you perhaps uh, give us a sense of where you're at in terms of IT modernization? Yes. So um, I will tell you that our, our CIO, uh, Jamie Holcomb, has done a wonderful job. Um, he's, he's been at the office now a couple of years. We've, we've really taken an approach to first stabilize our systems. I think that, that when he came in, there was uh, problems with systems going down, quite frankly, and, and, and the, the cost to all of us when, you know, exam, if the examiners all can't work for one hour is really astronomical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really important to have the stability of our systems, uh, which he's done a wonderful job uh, improving the, the stability of our systems, knock on wood. We really haven't seen any, any significant problems and um, have really been in a much better place uh, in the last couple of years, uh, even though we're, we're in, the, in this remote environment. We've also been very focused on what we're modernizing. Uh, so we have a, a whole entirely new uh, search tool for patent examiners, which uh, is, is, has been rolled out to examiners. And by the way, we've rolled out a, a similar type of search program for the whole public just recently. And I've received some really good feedback about that. It's actually enables people uh, to search from their homes uh, instead of having to, to have a certain terminal, which, which has been really helpful. And it, it gives you basically the same, the same tools as the examiners have. So that's been a, a huge improvement. Um, I can talk on and on for this. I'm only going to pick highlights here. Uh, we're also working on, on use of artificial intelligence. Uh, as far as our search tool goes, the new search tool is the basis for use of artificial intelligence. And we're piloting use of artificial intelligence sort of behind the scenes in those tools. It's reading what the examiner does. It's getting input from the examiner to help them to find prior art references, uh, which I think has a lot of potential down the road. And then where we're, we're actually using artificial intelligence now and even saving money from this is in our classification. Um, we have a, a whole new uh, classification system, by the way, um, and a whole new routing of applications, which is new within the last couple of years. Um, but, but that aside, the, that we're using artificial intelligence to classify 
some of our applications. And, and that has actually saved the, the USPTO and hence our user community costs. Uh, and that's been extremely successful. So one of the one of the features or one of the things that is of concern to private practice agents around the world is the implementation of DocX as a as a standard. Can you provide us with some some updates on this implementation and why was it delayed for almost a year? I think yes, it was it was actually delayed by me a year and 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 before I was in this role, I know Andre Yanku has also had also delayed it. So let me just, if I can, just give some background about um, DocX. So in our new upgraded uh, systems, uh, we, we are hoping that, that applications will be filed in this DocX format, which will be a benefit to not only the USPTO to be able to more easily process all of our applications, but it will be a benefit to all of the users because since we're in this more text-based format, we can do checks and pre-checks for you, give you a report that says, uh, here's, here's some concerns raised, you can fix things on the spot. Um, so it really has many benefits uh, for all of us. The, the concerns that uh, we were hearing from some in the public, and, and, and I'll, I know there's differing views on this, but I will characterize the majority of, of what I'm hearing, is that most people believe the vast majority of applications filed in DocX will be filed and not absolutely not have any problems. However, there was concern that in these unique situations, such as when you have different from your standard text, like maybe you have a formula in your specification hmm. um, or maybe something else, that the rendering of, of the images in DocX uh, is either different on different machines or, it's, or it changes, potentially changes um, from what the applicant thought they were filing, and then, and then they, they do a, a change to DocX and file it, and they actually had a change and didn't recognize it. Um, let me first say that, that every issue we've found, I believe we've been able to correct. The concern is, are there issues in front of us that we don't see? Um, and the fear that we had, uh, the fear that was raised to us anyway, was that uh, one of what happens if, you know, we accidentally don't notice that this change, DocX changed something, it's not noticed, and all of a sudden, do we have a problem because um, uh, you didn't file what your what your uh, applicant wanted wanted to have filed, and now now it would be new matter to be added in. So so here so we delayed to make sure that we can get confidence in this because it's really important that we get the public's confidence. Here's what we're going to do. So we are going to announce a pilot program. Uh, pilot's a bad word. We're going to announce um, a period of time where we're going to permit people to file a PDF version like they do today in addition to the DocX. Okay. That way, if there's any problem with any rendering, you have the support in that PDF and you can go back to that and you have the support and it won't be new matter. And, and the intent here is to take away the concerns that, that the attorneys have about any malpractice type of issues or, or hurting their clients' interests and really get people to test this so we can really get the confidence in everybody. So it was delayed to give us time to have that much uh, greater robust uh, testing process where where the public will have confidence and we will have confidence and we can all move forward in a more effective way. So that so has not been like, announced yet, by the way. It will be announced right. soon. But. Right. So uh, perhaps a word of advice for those practitioners listening to us today is, you know, make sure that you're not, if if you are participating in this in this project or. Uh, then that you're not filing run-of-the-mill te simply text-based applications, but that you are using, you know, formulas or, or graphs or tables within the spec to make sure that we can address some of the questions that, as you raised, perhaps you don't know exist already. Yeah, and we'll have to make this change. 
So, because this is our whole basis for our systems. So please, everybody, you know, like use it, spread the word. And I hope with this PDF, you know, being able to file this PDF, we've taken away any risk to all of you. I hope we never use the PDFs. I hope you file them and we never have to look at them. But in those rare situations where something might not render okay, we have it there if we need it. Thank you very much. And there are a few points that I I really would like to to address. One is the uh, deferred subject matter eligibility response pilot program. Um, And have you noticed any issues, any objections, any roadblocks in, in implementing this? Well, we're, we're, on, the, we're on the front end of, of implementing this. So to give, if it's okay, I'll, I'll give some background here as well. So yes, please. We, we were asked to do, do a pilot program from some members of Congress where we were deferring the subject matter eligibility examination. The hope was that if you defer that, the, when you solve the other statutes, you know, 112, 102, and 103, that you also solve any uh, subject matter eligibility issues so it becomes moot and you've saved everybody time. Uh, what we've done uh, at USPTO is implemented this pilot program where we had the examiner still make the rejection. And, and I know there have been questions about why the examiner still makes the 101 rejection, and then they let the applicant defer their response. The reason why we did that, quite frankly, is we wanted the applicant to be able to make the educated decision as to whether they wanted to participate in this pilot program or not. We feared, quite frankly, that if we didn't make the the 101 rejection, if it existed in the case, that the applicant wouldn't know that it existed. They would go through the other statutes. And if those other statutes didn't solve the 101 issue, after all that prosecution, you then get a 101 rejection. And we thought that would be kind of shocking to the applicant. So basically, the way we're going to implement this is we'll make the 101 rejection. We will tell the applicant, you're part of the pilot program. You do not need to respond to this if you don't want to. The applicant can decide whether or not they want to respond to it. If they, res- if they don't respond and then it becomes moot during the course of prosecution, the examiner removes it. Uh, we thought that was the best first step. Um, so that's the way we've implemented. We have about just under 700 examiners participating in this, but I don't yet have any results because it's, this is all brand new. This is uh, literally within the last you know, month or so that, that we've actually kicked it off. So, so we have a number of examiners participating. I know office actions have gone out, um, but we're really waiting on the responses to come back to see how many people are going to defer. And there's, then there, there's, it's just under 700 across in all, uh, in all technologies. So one point you raised, which I think is important perhaps to just spend a moment or two on, is if towards the end of the prosecution, if the examiner finds that the 101 rejection should be withdrawn, then it's up to the examiner to formally withdraw that 101 rejection. Um, if the examiner forgets, what should the applicant be doing with this? So after, when you hit to, to a final any outstanding office, any outstanding rejections would have to be addressed. So if it wasn't removed, it would still be considered outstanding. So, so it is up to the examiner to remove it. If the applicant believes that it's moot and hasn't been removed, they should be reaching out to the examiner and having that discussion. Okay, great. Thank you. Let's move on to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of the questions that we would like to have some views on is how far along is the Council for Inclusive Innovation in developing the National Innovation Strategy? Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for the question, because um, this is a really important issue to, to me and the USPTO. And uh, so we, we have been working um, uh, on the Council for Inclusive Innovation. The Secretary of Commerce uh, ha- has become the chair of this. And uh, I, I am hopeful that, that you 
that we you will see a, a strategy or at least the starts of a strategy because there is a, it is actually getting quite extensive um, sometime in in the spring is is our hope now you know as you all know we, we do have a, a political um, appointee who's coming into the USPTO uh, hopefully on the sooner side but she has yet to be able to go, go through the whole confirmation process I don't know how the timing will play in quite frankly but but because I know this is an important issue to, to her too and that's Kathy Vidal who I think is going to be a wonderful director of the USPTO by the way and so I'm hoping that in the spring we'll be able to start rolling out the strategy uh, there is a lot of work this has been a, a public private group working together and uh, a lot of work that's been happening um, on the strategy and, and hopefully hopefully in the spring. So yeah, this is really important. And I think we're, we're seeing not only uh, national and regional offices looking at this, but also national associations as well as individual firms. So I think you're, I think the USPTO has a leadership role to play in, in EDI initiatives. And I think, uh, you know, people will probably uh, follow your lead. And so I, I'm, I must commend you on this initiative. And I think it's a very important one. And, uh, you know, we should keep our our eyes on the ball on, on this particular topic. Um, thank you for this. Uh, FICP really does support this, these initiatives. I think you have a meeting with the uh, FICP Bureau coming up in the, in the next few weeks, and I think you'll find that FICP is very supportive of these initiatives and will try to help as much as we can. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Moving along to uh, an, another topic of great interest, which is the PTAB. What is the current caseload at the PTAB? Can you provide us with some indications of this? Sure. I can give you high level, um, high level indications. So both on, on the appeals and the trials, the caseload has been relatively stable. So we really haven't seen any, and that's, you know, including the, the, the pandemic time, really haven't seen any big increases or decreases in filings. Um, to me, the big thing is, is that the, the PTAB for appeals has really decreased their pendency. So the pendency is just about 12, 12 months. Um, for, for an appeal, whereas um, I don't remember the exact time, but probably going back to 2006 or seven timeframe, it was about three years. So yeah. the caseload has been relatively stable. They've done a great job uh, reducing the, the backlog so that they're, they're at a pendency that that's better. I'll just go there because most mostly this is where I always get asked when I go out speaking, but about the director review process for Arthrex, um, where we are seeing... Uh, cases come in requesting um, director review, which, which uh, by the way, is a process we, we, I set up, um, but, but really wasn't mandated by Arthrex, but I thought it was important that people be able to try to bring to our attention cases that they thought needed um, uh, the director to look at. So uh, the cases, interestingly enough, they, they, they've been relatively stable, although of late, I think possibly with knowing that there might be a new director in soon, it does seem like there's been less requests um, of, of late in the last few weeks, but I don't know if that's just an anomaly or, or, or there is something <laughs> to that. Um, but as far as uh, accepted cases, um, uh, two have been, been accepted and, and um, uh, by me and, and um, a third will actually be on the way in the coming days. So uh, I know those get a lot of attention when they are out. Uh, I think people are trying to figure out what type of cases uh, are subject to, to, to director review. Perhaps applicants are stockpiling those requests for the new director to come in. You know, there, there is a time component, so there's only so much that they can do that, but, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and and we've, we've been speaking about patents for most of the time today. I, I, I did want to address some trademark issues. Uh, where are you at in terms of implementing the uh, the trademark 
Modernization Act. Right. So, um, so the the TMA is is completely implemented. Um, I will say, from being commissioner for patents and then coming into the the you know director role temporarily, uh, this was one of my 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 first uh, and big tasks outside of patents. Right, was to to make sure that the TMA was was implemented on time because it was it was statutory of 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 the deadline. So we did make all of the deadlines because those those deadlines were. Um, in December, we're still on the front end of the actual uh, work. Uh, there have been about 40, mid-40s, I think 45 petitions to uh, that, that about uh, either miss, you know, that, that um, trademarks are not being in use and those those are just starting to be processed as we speak. So uh, I think all, all is good with the timing um, and we're just now working through the initial steps. One of the issues that always comes up when we start talking about trademarks and particularly the fact that you saw a 30% increase in, in financial 2021. How is the USPTO addressing counterfeiting? Well, we've seen two, two significant problems on the trademark side. So one is, of course, counterfeiting um, you know, goods and selling them you know, under, under fake, fake names. Um, so there's a number of ways that, that we address that. Uh, first of all, we've done a, a um, we've partnered with the, the National Crime Prevention Unit, um, to have public service announcements, we recently had one out that's that um, uh, was geared towards teenagers about about fake, uh, you know, uh, stop fakes is called, and, and it's making sure people can can look for signs of when something might be might be fake. Um, and so I think that has been really helpful. We've got a lot had a lot of good press with that. We of course work with with the rest of the government, internal to U.S. and other offices um, about counterfeiting. And then it wasn't in your question, but I'll also just say. Uh, well, sort of was in your question about the filings. We're seeing a lot of fraudulent filings being filed on the trademark side, and that's something that that we've addressed. Um, we've actually had twice now issued sanctions orders, which we had not really done in the past, um, against companies filing uh, or entities filing fraudulent filings. Um, and this is something we continue uh, to monitor. We. I'll just say we haven't really seen that as much on the patent side, and hopefully we're we're going to stem the tide on the trademark side. But it's something we we unfortunately that that we in all offices are going to need to keep an eye on on both patents and trademark filings in years to come. Right. Listen, this is of course have been a, a spectacular conversation. Thank you very very much for this. Time is almost upon us, but there there are maybe one or two questions I'd like to come back to the use of AI internally at the USPTO and. Uh, uh, and, and I think you, you've mentioned that AI is being used for uh, classification purposes, but there's anecdotal evidence or at least some hearings that AI has also been used to assign cases to examiners. And, and there appears to be some backlog in, in assigning certain cases to examiners. Is there anything that can be done in that? Well, first of all, can you confirm whether or not AI tools are being used to assign cases to examiners? And if, if there is a backlog, is there anything that can be done? Sure. So AI, there, there's actually a lot of a lot of issues in your in your question. So AI in itself is only um, peripherally related to the the docketing of cases to examiners. And what I mean by that is when the AI is involved in classification, that in itself will lead it to a set of examiners because obviously how a case is classified determines what examiners it goes to. But the AI ends there as far as classification, and it's up to the supervisors to be able to, to give the, the work out. We, we recently, the, there really is not a delay 
in docketing, there's a difference from what we've done in the past, but it's it's actually not a delay. And this is a very sort of weedy issue. So I'll try to give it a, a high level here. Um, we change the way we route cases uh, to examiners, which in my opinion is is one of the most significant positive changes uh, that we've made. This was this was quite frankly one of my big initiatives as commissioner for patents, and this was done before I was in in this role of, of acting director. What we did with the routing is. We, we have a better match to the examiners. It used to be based on the USPC, which was a one classification point to the examiner, right? And have a one-to-one match. And now what we're doing is we're classifying based on a whole classification picture. So we have a profile of the technology of the application. And we've now store profiles for examiners based on their actual work that they have done. So now we can have a better profile of matching the case to the examiners. So this is a huge change and it's going to be a a very positive change that's going to evolve over time. So I feel really good about that. But also part of our changes when we did this redocketing is when is we have the ability to now better monitor the number of cases and better give out cases uh, based on not only the match that I talked about, but also the workload. So what will happen is you'll see We'll do this this profile-to-profile match, and we'll say, okay, there's 10 examiners who have the suitable profile for this case. Who is the one that needs the work the most? And we can can use that that secondary criteria once you find the right matches. Of course, you wouldn't go to somebody who doesn't have a match, right? So this is a, a whole new system that's in place, which is going to be a great change for us. Part of that system is smaller dockets because we're more nimble in terms of getting them to the examiners and how often we load the examiners. So what people perceive as a delay in docketing is actually not a delay. It was a choice to have smaller dockets, which enable us to keep first in, first out better, um, enables us to be more nimble with giving out cases. Um, But it's not a delay. It's literally just, it's just that we've chosen to have smaller dockets. So it's just more time to get there, but not a delay. It's It's a choice. So that's that's very interesting, and and as you say, it's a it's a pretty weedy issue, and I, I we can probably spend. I've a- done a whole I've done literally a whole webinar on this, literally <laughs> just just the, the new routing process. So just one quick question, perhaps the fact that then the examiners have smaller dockets, I suppose, allows you to more dynamically route the work to the examiners based on their the current status of their of their workload instead of having you know loading them up for two three years out and then you know coming back to it two, three years later and seeing, oh my God, there's a problem here. Correct. So, so it used to be before this that some examiners had small dockets, some had really large dockets. Um, and so what we've done is we've, we've tried to normalize everybody to the smaller docket size, which absolutely gives us the, the ability to be more nimble in how we give out work. What we also do for the examiners is we refresh their dockets much more frequently than we did in the past. So literally every, every uh, bi-week when you hand in work, and we might've gone weekly, I'm not really sure about that, but it's either weekly or bi-weekly. When you hand in work, you get refreshed right away. Um, and so, so that has been a really helpful step, but, but um, the delay, and I know, so some of the growing pains here, quite frankly, when people were calling for status, status checks on applications that haven't been docketed, um, there was some confusion uh, because our estimator tool didn't 
wasn't kept up quite frankly with the changes it is now um so so it, so it's in a better place now but i think that there was some confusion when people called for status inquiries and cases hadn't been docketed yet and they feel oh there must be a delay it actually as i said wasn't a delay but to your question yeah it absolutely gives us the ability to to, to better balance work to, to give work where it's getting completed and as the examiner works through they get refreshed brilliant i think that's a wonderful initiative and i i think uh, both for applicants and for examiners, this uh, can only be seen as a positive yeah. development. Well, the key is really the, the profile that we now can have for the case and the profile for the examiner. So, you know, it used to be like if you had a, a gear and you went to the gear art and the supervisor would have to remember, okay, who did the gear with coatings or who did the gear, you know, whatever, for whatever reason. And now you can actually look and say that this... It, our system will say this examiner has the best profile. It's not artificial intelligence, but it's really saying, okay, this profile, this, this is the examiner who does the gears with coatings. So you have a gear with a special coating and you know exactly who to go to, where before it had to be the supervisor remembering that. And that's a very simplistic example because, but you, that's the whole point is you can get a, a really good profile of the case coming in and a profile of the examiner based on their actual work. And then as technologies evolve, the examiner's work will evolve. So their profile evolves. And so they're getting the cases, the right cases continually. Well, I look forward to having a conversation with you in about a year from now. <laughs> We're going to look at these. Yeah, that's a really weedy issue. That's one of the things that like, like excites me and excites us at PTO that we're, we weren't really sure how people would be uh, you know, excited about that, but, but people really want to know that. And a lot of people want to know because they're trying to route cases. It goes back to your question about examiner profiles and allowance. People are really interested in saying, how, how are you doing cases? It might be a little harder for people to figure out the system now, and that wasn't our intent, um, but the whole intent was to get the best match of the case to the right examiner with the right background so that you get the highest quality examination. Uh, thank you very much. Mr. Hirschfeld, once again, I, I really, uh, you know, on behalf of FICB, this was a spectacular conversation. Thank you very much for taking some time today with us. We've had a, a few questions. Uh, people have been engaged. I think, uh, uh, you know, we look forward to to see what happens next at the USPTO with uh, with a, a great deal of anticipation. So thank you again very, very much for, for speaking with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you to you and thank you to FICP. And I appreciate everyone who joined in. We'll see you next time at the FICP Focus 45 events. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.